This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kempf and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, a podcast series brought to you by the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Queensland. This series is about those little things we can do in our university classroom, the little things that make a big difference. My name is Seb, and as always, I'm joined here by my friend and colleague, Al. Hi, everyone. As you'll know by now, the series is motivated by our belief that what ultimately matters to the student experience is what happens in our classrooms. In our universities, we get to talk a lot about course design, teaching policy, teaching expenditure. But what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about those small examples of great practice that can have a big impact. And so in Higher Ed Heroes, we want to share those examples by having conversations with great teachers about the practices that they use to bring their classroom alive and practices which they believe can be adopted by others to good effect. And we want to have those conversations without using the kind of jargon that's often associated with teaching committees in higher education. So we want a buzzword-free zone. And we know what those buzzwords are. Phrases like flipped classroom, blended learning, work-integrated learning, research-led teaching. When we hear those words, which we believe are better suited to teaching committees, we do this. And we really want the uh, buzzer to encourage us all to talk in everyday terms about practice. So in today's podcast, we are talking about how students learn through pitching their ideas for a public exhibition on the subject that they are studying. And we are joined for this conversation by Dr. Mary Broughton, who is a psychology of music lecturer at the School of Music. Mary, welcome. Very pleased to be with you. The psychology of music. One exercise that you make your students do, which we think is really amazing, relates to collaborations that you have with the curator of one of the museums here in Brisbane. Could you tell us how did you come up with this idea in the first place? It was actually off the back of a trip to the museum that my mother took my children on (laughs) (laughs) during the school holidays. And at the time, one of, there was a travelling museum exhibition from Questacon in Canberra, which is the uh, sort of the national science um, learning centre. Uh, it was called Perception Deception, mm-hmm. and it was all about visual illusions and the um, and you know tactile illusions and things like that. And my mother came home with the kids talking about this, and I went, you know what? There's a ton of these in music. Why don't we construct a idea for an exhibit or a piece of assessment or a learning activity or something around using the knowledge that you develop through the course that I'm teaching, which was about music cognition and development, and work with the students to come up with a hypothetical exhibit idea for a exhibit um, an exhibition on the psychology of music <laughs> mm. and how does it actually work what what's what's the what's the practical steps that the students have to work through the first thing that we do as a group is we go to the queensland museum and we have a lecture session there led by the manager of spark lab so spark lab is the uh, the science center or the the learning um, center within the queensland museum 
it's a very hands-on uh, type space where students or young people get to come and really experience science and scientific thinking, observation and trying things out, experimentation uh, for themselves and see how science works. What we do is, as a class, we go to the museum, we have a lecture session, and then the students get to go into Spark Lab and see how the design of the, the exhibits themselves, the design of the entire exhibition itself works. So they try lots of different ideas, and all of these ideas they then bring back into the classroom. Then they work in small groups to come up with a new exhibit idea for a hypothetical psychology of music uh, exhibition because psychology is the scientific study of the human mind and mental processes. So they come up with ideas um, targeted at a particular age group for exhibits that could go into Spark Lab. And the whole session or the whole assessment and this period of, of work culminates when the Spark Lab manager then comes back into the classroom at the end of the semester mm. and we have an in-class poster session. So all the students, um, the, the group's put up a poster of their idea uh, with a rationale for it, the theory, the research behind it, um, a SWOT analysis of it within the exhibits, um, exhibition space, and they get feedback from the Spark Lab manager uh, on their exhibit ideas. And mm. I then follow up with her after semester, and we've had some really fascinating discussions where she's, uh, you know, going, I had no idea you could do this. I'm thinking of, you know, I've got that, that idea <laughs> tucked away for when we start oh. to redesign design the, uh, the Spark Lab space. Wow. I know Seb will have a huge amount of questions, but I have one very quick one. What, what's the best idea for an exhibition that you've had come out and- They are so varied. Yeah, so, so varied. Um, everything from understanding how the human auditory system works, so with like a cochlea mm. and how you can play different uh, sounds into a, a device that then activates this, um, uh, what, what do you call it, like a model of a cochlea mm-hmm. to you see how different frequencies affect um, perception through to emotion and how things like the tempo of music or the speed or pace of it can uh, change your physiological arousal, mm. so make you feel more energised, mm. or if it's you know up tempo, will make you feel uh, more calm and relaxed. If it's low tempo, there's a, a fascinating um, one called the the scale illusion, which is a an auditory perception. Well, it's an illusion, <laughs> whereby if you hear two different melodies played like dun, 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 with one instrument and the other instrument going dun, 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 when you put them together your brain automatically fuses them so that you hear um, one continuous sound wow. or, or s- string of sounds rather than two different different sounds wow yeah i've learned something i <laughs> do indeed have a ton of questions but let me start with the first one and that is so obviously You could just say to students, okay, we are interested in all the examples you described, but write an essay about that. But you have chosen not to do this. And so you have chosen not only to have them think about how this could be translated into perhaps art or something that can be experienced, but because it's also about how you create an exhibition out of this, that it obviously is intended towards how can you convey this to a particular audience. So... What is required for students in terms of the learning process that is so different from having them write a paper? 
Well, I must say the precursor to this experience is a paper. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair enough. (laughs) I uh, get students to do, um, I give them a range of topics. I ask them to write a literature review. Of course, thinking that at this level, it's a third level course. So the students will be going into honours in the following year. So we want them to have that experience of synthesising literature, developing an argument, coming up with a perspective um, on it. So they do that as sort of preparatory work. Then based on the topics of their literature review, I put them in groups. So I try to put like-minded people in groups so the group will, you know, not have to argue to come up with a, um, a topic. Uh, so that's uh, sort of, I think, a critical step in then getting them to that um, that experience. The idea for for not doing, you know, another written assignment on this is the the notion that we're wanting to prepare our graduates to go into a world where work is uncertain where they're going to have to draw on a wide variety of skills and knowledge, academic, interpersonal skills, to be able to work with people that they might not normally work with and come up with, uh, be faced with a problem and have to come up with a solution to it, combining their different expertise and skills. So the course I teach has very diverse it's a very diverse cohort I have students studying music I have students studying psychological science I have students studying biomedical science or you know business and they all bring their own sort of um, disciplinary backgrounds to the project and I think it's really exciting to watch mm. how they have to negotiate and and draw on others expertise and sort of you know feel a little humble at times I don't know about this you know more about this but hold on I know a lot about like making a business case for something so I can bring that into the mix it's sort of distilled version of what you need to be able to do in the real world and it doesn't matter you know what area you're working in you have to work with people there are always problems to be solved you have to be able to find creative answers to them and particularly in the you know uncertain job markets of that we're we're seeing now and in the future you have to be able to identify an opportunity and then work with other people to come up with a solution and communicate that in a convincing manner Mm and work across difference as well. To make it understandable, intelligible to an audience, I think that's a really big thing, right? Yeah. Um, This must be really challenging for students, right? I'm sure that this is not the normal thing that they would encounter in a course. So what are the biggest hurdles that they face in that and what is it that you need to do in order to help them navigate through these hurdles? Mm. At the beginning of the semester, I'm very clear with the the students from the outset this is potentially not something you've encountered before it's usually fine with the arts and the music students they're used to thinking creatively and they'll get on board with that sometimes when you have more of the science background students they're so used to working within a particular disciplinary framework that's really well established that it can be difficult for them to to step outside of that which is fine we're all we're all different But some of the exercises that I do in preparing for that uh, is to, like, for example, get the students to, you know, put their hand up. If you're a music student, if you're a psychology student, we pair up and we discuss different concepts Mm -hmm. so that it gives 
every student a chance to shine from their own disciplinary perspective. So and when we're talking about, you know, learning theories and operant conditioning, um, I'll have some of the music students go, what's that? Mm. You know, psychology students, can you explain that? And they go, oh, yes, I know about this. We've been doing this, you know, for years. But then I'll have, you know, concepts from music such as tempo or scale and this gives the, like the music students an opportunity to shine where I can explain this. So they work in small groups to share that expertise. And in that sharing, I think it actually strengthens, strengthens the bonds between, uh, between the group because we're, it's almost a safe place to be humble and say, I know lots of stuff about something, but I, about some things, but I don't know so much about, about others. And you can kind of sort of unravel things a bit and then start from a base of, okay, we all know different things. We're going to embark upon a problem together and we can conjoin our, our expertise to do that. Do you see the students behaving differently from the classroom to the museum? Is there a change in their approach, their attitude, their thinking when yes. the space changes? Absolutely. Mm. I think the museum visit is one of the highlights of the course. It's getting out of the familiar classroom mm. Mm. where you're seeing things on a you know a board, you know, you know PowerPoint or you know videos shown or you know just music played. It gets you out of that sort of seated environment into the real world. Getting the hands-on experience with the lab, it's with the Spark Lab itself, with the uh, learning from the the manager as well. It also helps them to interact with the other staff members that work in Spark Lab because they come from very different backgrounds. Some are from straight science, others are from sort of more you know Bachelor of Arts backgrounds who may have done some some science. But it's all around. Some are studying education. It's all around you know communication. When they come back into the classroom, having had that experience, they're really energised and engaged. I think that the next highlight in um, in the course is when the Spark Lab manager comes into the classroom mm. and when she goes around and talks to every group about their idea, the students leave with a... If there might have been some all confusion or some feeling like I'm not sure if I quite nailed this or were we on the right track having that interaction um, with her really helps and go oh that sort of just you know was the word congealed or gelled <laughs> brought everything to one, yeah, of, one of those together. absolutely yeah. yeah and obviously you were saying that your students run this project of devising their own exhibition in groups in yes. teams and then they would uh, get advice when the curator comes back from Spark Lab, and then they would get. Do they present this to their peers? And then also, how do you assess them on that particular exercise? Yeah, uh, as their groups, they produce a poster, like a conference style, a zero size poster, and these are pinned up around the classroom. So the students have to walk around in that session. They have to benchmark their idea the way it was presented against others in the class at the end of the uh, ass assessment they produce a an individual project report so they're still assessed individually the group work becomes part of that individual assessment so it's a three-stage project report the first is actually from stemming from the literature review they have to do some independent preparation work before they start meeting with their group. So they have to go into Spark Lab, they have to, or another you know, child-friendly um, exhibit in the museum, 
they have to do a SWOT analysis of uh, of a different um, exhibit. What are its strengths, its weaknesses? What does it respond to? The opportunities? What are the potential threats to it to it working? They, so they're coming into the group work already with the literature review behind them so they know about theory and research in the topic area they're all interested in. They've then had the session at the museum. They've done their own SWOT analysis of another exhibit. So when they come to work as a group, they've already got a pretty strong foundation of, of uh, what they're going to do and how they're going to go about it. That uh, aspect uh, sort of gets tied together in what we call stage one of the project report. It's preparation for the group work. Stage two is the working in groups and the idea that they generate and the poster. And then stage three is the benchmarking of their own against others that they've seen in the in-class poster presentation uh, session and a reflection on their own, what they could have done better, what they might change in the future. They also do a reflection on what they've learnt through the whole process. Mm. And is the SWOT analysis marked or is that part of the preparations and then the reflection is the part that's marked? It's, so it's all marked, yeah. So okay. the rubric spells uh, out the marking criteria for the different stages, so okay. for preparation mm. for the project. The project is marked as a group, but I have a strategy of peer feedback to moderate marks. No! I'm going to just... I'm, I'm hitting that just because I... I'm just hitting it because I haven't heard it. I'm not sure if peer feedback is yeah. a no. I was already at the point of rubric. <laughs> oh, I, I thought about rubric too. Yeah, anyway, here we go. Sorry. No, they just roll off the tongue. You didn't even know. So where were we now? A peer, uh, peer assessed feedback. That's correct. Mm. <laughs> There's this little online tool. Oh, I'm doing it again. No, no, I, I think okay. it's online tool. Okay. Online tools, fine. We can we can have that. So it asks every student to mark themselves and their group members in terms of what uh, have they actually done to participate in the group work. So have they actually turned up? Mm-hmm. Have they participated? Mm-hmm. And what's effort have they put in in the contributions that they've okay. made? Okay. So. A few years ago, I tried to do something around quality and the students were really uncomfortable with giving each mm. other, mm. well, yeah, yeah. Get, marking each other essentially on their, um, mm. on the quality. They go, mm. we're, we're not, you know, mm. we're mm. not able to, we're mm. in a position to assess this, we're students. Mm. So we changed it to, did they, uh, did they make a contribution, did they make, did they turn up and did they make an effort to contribute? Mm. And from that, uh, now all these marks, they these assessments they come to me they don't get shared with any other students so I use them purely for moderation Mm. so I do this at the beginning of the group work process and again at the end and if I see that there are discrepancies in groups that aren't operating so well gives me a chance to you know step in if necessary and see how they're going can I be of any assistance gives me an opportunity to feed Back to, oh, is that a bad word? No, 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 <laughs> to not feedback at all. to um, to that group member that is there something going on that maybe they is getting in the way of them being able to contribute. Mm. That idea of you stepping in and mediating takes us to a good final question, which is if someone's listening in they don't have your expertise or your familiarity with this kind of teaching, what are the skills that they need to have? 
One of them clearly is they need to be able to build relationships with a museum or a, a person in, in the, the industry. Real world. Yeah, a real world contact. Did you mm. build them or did you already have those contacts? No, I didn't have them. I was introduced to the Spark Lab manager by a research assistant I had who had said a few years ago she had done something with somebody else that had some connection to the museum and she said oh I think I've got this person's email so pretty much a cold call (laughs) and just saying look could, could we meet would this be of interest I've got this idea I mean my experience is that that people in um, in organisations are really open to the idea of engaging students and you know having them come in and see what they do in in you know helping develop the next you know, generation of of adults in our in our communities. Yeah, it was just pretty much a cold call, and then a I think the art of communication is what's key when working with a stakeholder, <laughs> or even when working with students. It's the art of opening lines of communication, being really clear, slow as well, because while you might have a million or one wonderful ideas, people can only take on board about two or three things at any one time. So you might have all this stuff sort of ticking away, but you've just got to gradually step people through the process and keep them on board as you go. So I think communication is a really key skill. And that's a great theme as well when you want to do something novel, something different to take your time, to go slow, to communicate it clearly. It's such a great tip. It makes me think of how I could translate some of what I'm doing with my courses in peace and conflict studies. How would I make students design an exhibition on genocide, for example? Right? Yeah. Could that be something that would be a really amazing learning thing for them to do because they have to think in different ways than we usually do this when we ask them to write an essay about this. So, Mary, I think this has been really inspirational. Very happy to have had you here with us and if you are tuning in and you liked what you actually heard and you want to come into conversations get in contact with mary please by all means you can find us on facebook twitter instagram please come and join the conversation because this is the last recording of the first series i want to say something slightly differently as a sign off throughout the series we've been saying to buzzwords But that's really because we think that some of these terms often obfuscate or even prevent a focus on teaching practice. However, both Seb and I, we really want to be clear as we sign off on this first series that we might actually on occasion say yes (laughs) to certain buzzwords. We might, for example, say yes to a flipped classroom if it meant that we focus on the kind of practices that Gerhard Hofstetter discussed with us earlier in the series. We might also say (laughs) to to work-integrated learning, if it means that we can have the kind of conversations that we've just had with Mary Broughton or those that we had with Carol Wilson-Burnow. We might say to graduate attributes if it meant discussing bodily practices in the classroom as we did with Linda Shevlar who believes that that prepared her students for a career in communities. So we might say all the time to these buzzwords if it means they allow us to talk about teaching practices. 
But we will continue to say if those buzzwords obfuscate or prevent us from talking about what we think is most important. So we want to sign off with a yes and a no. Yes to inspirational teachers in the classroom. Yes to innovative practices. And no to anything that gets in the way. So... I'll go back to my normal sign-off now (laughs) and say thanks for joining us and we look forward to your company in the future.